Back in episode 86, and then again last time, I covered all the issues of Spider-Man Brand New Day, the all-new, all-rebooted, kind of, sorta, new incarnation of Spider-Man, up to issue 588. This time, while it's probably not as all-consuming, I'll be steaming forward to issue 600, which seemed like such a big deal at the time and now seems so long ago. After the census-shattering character assassination brought Brand New Day to a close, the series carried on with pretty much the same template as before. A team of writers, under the auspices of editor Steve Wacker, would churn out three issues of The Amazing Spider-Man every month, with each story arc having a different creative team. So, despite not being labelled as Brand New Day anymore, it was business as usual. A brand new afternoon, so to speak. After the multi-issue arc last time, issue 589 was a one-issue story, allowing us all to breathe and take stock. Written by Fred Van Lente, with art by Paolo Seguera and Hamilton Santos, Marked sees the return of long-forgotten Spider-Man adversary, The Spot. The Spot first appeared in the Al Milgrom run of Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man way back in 1984, and he's Dr. Jonathan On, a scientist, because, aren't they always, trying to tap into the ability to harness the dimension of darkness accessible by cloak of and dagger fame. But an accidental power surge bonded him with the elements of those dimensions, creating a one-man portal conduit. Basically, The spot can pop through dimensions as easily as you can walk through fog. He showed up a few times over the years, but he's never been what you would call a major threat for Spider-Man or a fan favourite. This is all explained in the text piece that opens the comic, as is other major developments, such as... The job of Murr of New York is up for grabs, with the reveal that Menace was Lily Hollister, the daughter of the last Murr, Bill Hollister. Finn Gonzalez is still in jail for his part in the Spider-Tracer killings conspiracy, and Harry Osborn has fallen back into the bottle after the reveal that Lily, his girlfriend, was menace. I was a little bit confused by this. Harry was never an alcoholic, as far as I can remember. He was a drug addict. But well, whatever. A word about the art before we begin. I'm not familiar with Sequera and Santos, but the art in this issue is pleasing. There's a European comic sensibility to it, but with a McFarlane Spider-Man in the middle of it. This actually looks really good. Like what if McFarlane Spider-Man was drawn with somebody with actual artistic competence? Oh, shoot. I just said the quiet bit out loud. Sorry about that. The story is also interesting, and despite the rich vein of humour, quite dark. Russian mobster Dmitry Ivankov is in a turf war with the Zavlov brothers and comes to Peter Parker's orbit when he tries to rebrand his rep, that of a human trafficker, protection racket runner and drug baron, with donations to Feast, the humanitarian aid charity Aunt May works for. May is having none of it, and she tells Ivankov where to stuff his donations. Peter dons the red and blues to take Ivankov down. Along the way... We discover that a recent hit of Ivankov's went badly, with a young child in a coma after taking a bullet with somebody else's name on it. 
As Spidey busts the gun-running operation on board a docked boat, the Spot is killing Ivankov's men, brutally and without remorse. Spidey is intrigued. The Spot has never really been a killer before. This is a really well-told tale, a nice claustrophobic story taking place mostly in a confined space, with Spider-Man ending up having to protect the people he's here to take down from a villain who, traditionally, has no truck with pointless violence. There's lots of wonderful setup early on in the story to be paid off later, such as the child being in a coma and Spider-Man mocking Christian Bale's Batman voice, both of which dovetail into the ending magnificently when the kid is revealed to be the Spots, and after learning why the Spot is doing this, Spidey's piss-take of Bale's Batman gruffness becomes real. Spidey scurs the mobsters into testifying against Ivankov. It's a good writer who can balance light and dark as well as it's done here. Amazing Spider-Man issues 590 and 591 serve a dual purpose. Reveal how Spider-Man can have his secret identity back being a secret and move the storylines on to set up the events of Down the Road. Face Front, written by Dan Slott with art by Barry Kitson and, in what I can only assume was a deadline-crunching tactic, Dale Eaglesham, Mark Farmer and Jesse Delpergang see Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four team up on a mission to another dimension. Another dimension, another dimension, where Johnny Storm discovers that they used to know Spider-Man's real name and face, but no longer remember it. When Johnny discovers that Spider-Man has tampered with their minds, he's not too impressed. This two-part story essentially sets out to accomplish two things. One, explain how people who knew Peter's secret don't know it anymore. And more importantly, why they seem incapable of figuring it out. And B, move the storylines forward in that traditional, uncreative way. The time jump. It's moderately successful in the former, more successful in the latter. Really, it's not added anything to the stories to explain the ins and outs of putting the genie back in the bottle. It's been 44 issues since Brand New Day began, and we've lived this long without it. People are complaining that it's been 14 issues since the new Amazing Spider-Man title launched, and we still don't know what Peter did to piss everyone off. But this was a lot longer than that. It's all moot anyway. By the end, the FF know again. The time jump is handled more effectively. Whilst in the other dimension, time moves differently. So though Peter has only been gone two days, two months have passed at home. In that time, Nora Winters has struck up a relationship with Randy Robertson. Carly Cooper has gotten closer to Harry Osborne after helping him crawl out of the bottle. May Parker and Jay Jameson, Jonah's dad, have also grown closer, whilst Jay Jonah Jameson himself has become the mayor of New York. The latter is silly but does offer interesting possibilities. The others are stumbling blocks for Spider-Man to fall across along the way. The creative team have moved on from the marriage, but they seem deathly afraid of having Peter move on from Mary Jane. Have some courage, guys. MJ disappeared from the series for years in between the Marv Wolfman and Roger Stern runs, and the universe didn't explode. Facefront has some funny moments, but overall it's simply moving the pieces around to make sure all is in place for the next batch of stories, which begins in issues 592 through 594, a three-part story called 24-7 by writer Mark Wade and artists Mike McCone, Barry Kitson 
Andy Lanning and Carl Kiesel. Spider-Man meets up with Mer Jameson to offer the olive branch of peace, only to be rebuked by Jonah. Thoroughly annoyed, Spider-Man goes all out, being seen all over the city, helping people with web umbrellas when it's raining, stopping muggings, and bringing an end to other assorted nefarious deeds, generally being everything everywhere all at once, and making people think there may be more than one Spider-Man. Which is ridiculous, surely. It's enough to give Jonah a heart attack, though. The run comes to an end when Spidey meets a new, more deadly version of the Vulture, who is attacking criminals. Spider-Man learns that this new Vulture was experimented on by the mob, and this is his revenge. The battle culminates at the baseball game, which trashes the joint, puts Spider-Man on the outs with the citizens of New York, because you don't mess with baseball, and allows J. Jonah Jameson to up the funding on his anti-Spider-Man task force. Like Facefront, the basic plot here is pretty nondescript. We've seen another, more deadly version of the Vulture before, way back in 1973. And we've seen Spider-Man go from being loved to being hated in the span of an issue, numerous times. And we've just come out of an era of Spider-Man being hunted by the authorities, only to enter yet another one immediately. However, the character beats land well. Jonah is as epic a dickhead as ever, Revelling in his new position, pretending, as lots of politicians do, to be a man of the people, whilst cutting the corners we have to walk around whenever he can. Jonah is fortunately spurred what Peter sees, as Peter walks in on Aunt May and Jay getting all kinds of naked, although he handles it moderately well, all things considered. Aunt May's age needs to be considered here, though. For a while, Marvel have been de-aging May. And I prefer to think of this as because previously, we've seen May through Peter's eyes. So when he was a teenager, she seemed ancient. Now he's older, she's seeming younger to him. If Peter is around 23 now, thanks to the brand new day, May could conceivably only be in her mid to late 50s. If we accept also that Jonah is only in his mid 40s, not inconceivable, then Jay could be in his mid to late 60s. So... It's not that scandalous, Peter, that May Parker is still sexually active. Especially if she happens to look like the May Parker of the more recent Tom Holland movies. The story features two big plot developments. One, Norman Osborn is now even more powerful, and Peter realises his contempt for Jonah is related to his real contempt for Norman, vowing to bring him down whatever the cost. This will lead into the next big story, America's Son. The second big plot point is the reveal that, in Peter's absence, Vin Gonzalez's sister, Michelle Gonzalez, has moved into Vin's apartment, making her Peter's de facto roommate. He, of course, meets her naked, much like he did with Carly. They don't hit it off. Before we move on, though, a technical note. These comics are really cheaply produced. I haven't read these since they came out. They've been stored in a box in a cool place, and whilst I can't be asked bagging and boarding all my comics, they haven't been mistreated. Comics just over a decade old shouldn't feel as skanky as these, with what looks like damaged pages and deteriorating colours. Are these just my copies, or are they all like this? Coming out around this time was a one-shot, Amazing Spider-Man The Short Halloween, by writers Bill Hader and Seth Meyers, and artist Kevin Maguire. 
The title is obviously a play on the popular Batman series, The Long Halloween, and initially seemed to hold little appeal. For a while, starting in the early noughts, Marvel Comics seemed to crave the attention of Hollywood, practically begging some creatives more famous for other endeavours, such as film or TV, to come and play in the Marvel sandbox as if it would add some kind of legitimacy to the comics medium that it didn't have before. Some were actual comics fans, like Kevin Smith, Joss Whedon and Mark Guggenheim, whose credits often showed their comics-loving credentials. Others may have been comics fans, but the work wasn't perhaps the best, betraying a need to deconstruct, mock or generally belittle the material like the miniseries Get Craven by Ron Zimmerman, a man so famous I neither know nor care what he's famous for. So a comic written by Seth Meyers and Bill Hader may seem on the face of it to be another ego trip, similar to the one with Stephen Colbert last time. After all, Mayers is also a late-night talk show host, apparently, and Saturday Night Live alumni. Bill Hader is a comedian, actor and writer, and, likewise, an alumni of Saturday Night Live. This comic won't be on either's resume, but it's actually quite good. On All Hallows' Eve, Spider-Man finds himself knocked unconscious by a random thrown bottle, whilst fighting fumes of the Furious Five. He falls and hits his head, twice, once on a fire escape and then a heating vent. At the same time, Ronnie, dressed as Spider-Man, is out with his mates for Halloween and stumbles into the alley Spider-Man fell into to be sick and pass out due to the sheer amount of alcohol he's imbibed. Ronnie's friends enter the alleyway to help Ronnie home, but, and you can pretty much see where this is going, they pick up the real Spider-Man. It's a Frasier level of mistaken identities and misunderstandings, and needless to say, hijinks ensue. It's a simple premise, but all credit to Hader and Mayers, whilst well, not being uproariously funny or anything, it is gently amusing. Through this series of comic mishaps, Spider-Man inadvertently makes two lives better, whilst mostly just staying out of the way. Kevin Maguire's art sells the comedy moments well, and if it isn't going to end up on the 10 best Spider-Man stories ever list, it does entertain, whilst providing some wry grins along the way. At the back of this one-shot are art and text pieces plugging the upcoming America's Sun arc. Do you ever get the feeling Marvel are really plugging America's Sun? Before that, though, Amazing Spider-Man Annual Issue 36 came out and features an intriguing premise. What if something Ben Riley, Peter Parker's clone, did whilst he was on the road like Kane from Kung Fu came back to haunt Peter Parker? It's a story about family and lineage and it's well written by Mark Guggenheim with nice art from Pat O'Leaf and Andy Lanning. Peter Parker must die, sees Peter at the engagement party of May and Jay Jameson, a gathering that allows Peter to tease Jonah Jameson mercilessly that he, Peter, will, for all intents and purposes, be Jonah's brother. The party is in Boston, so Guggenheim can make lots of jokes at Bostonians' expense, but also allow for Jay to have found May Parker's long-lost family, including her younger sister, Jan. Now, I don't recall May ever mentioning having a family, which I'm positive would have come up at some point in the previous 45 years, but okay, whatever. There was an old web of Spider-Man annual, I believe, that did focus on Ben and May's early courtship. That may have mentioned something about her having a sister. I don't really recall. Doesn't matter that much. Retcons are retcons, and as they go, this isn't that egregious. 
Some of the family banter is funny, even if some of the gay gags and Pete having lavicious thoughts about his two cousins don't entirely land. Anyway, into all this family drama comes some family drama. The bad guy, Raptor, has apparently been on surveillance for six months and now has his man. He attacks Peter, who changes into Spider-Man, and they fight. It's not made clear if he was surveilling the Rileys or Peter, but either way, it's a stretch to have all these elements converge right now. We learn that Raptor's family died in an arson a few years ago, and the main suspect from a photo fit is someone bearing a remarkable resemblance to Ben Riley, who also bears a remarkable resemblance to Peter Parker. So why has Raptor only been surveilling for six months when this happened years ago? So yes, an intriguing premise, but I don't know that a lot was done with it here. I have no memory of this story at all. But it's a foregone conclusion that Ben didn't kill this guy's family, so we'll just have to see where this takes us in the future. Where we go in the future directly from here is into America's Son, finally. A five-part story running through issues 595 through 599. It is both a Dark Rain tie-in and a Spider-Man story. I have no idea or memory of what Dark Rain was. But traditionally, tie-ins don't really work years after the fact, especially when the reader, in this case me, couldn't care less about Dark Rain then or now. So again, let's see how this goes. Written by Joe Kelly, the art over the issues was by Phil Jimenez, Andy Lanning, Paulo Suquera, Hamilton Santos, Marco Chichetto, and Steven Segovia. The amount of artists is very odd, given how good Steve Wacker has been so far at keeping each art contained to one writer and artist team. But there were clearly deadline issues with this story, as one issue alone has five different credited artists. Since his return from the dead, Norman Osborn has branched out and is no longer just an adversary for Spider-Man, a move that always rubbed me the wrong way for the traditional no-good reason. Norman and the Green Goblin avoided Marvel's tendency to trade villains off with other heroes. Unlike, say, the Sandman, the Green Goblin only fought Spider-Man. This kept their fights more of a grudge match. Also, to the larger Marvel Universe, Norman Osborn wasn't that well known. Subsequent to bringing him back, though, someone at Marvel decided to turn him into Lex Luthor, a well-connected, uber-rich corporate magnate, untouchable and above the law. They compounded this by also making him the head of the Thunderbolt and Hammer. So please don't hurt him, Norman. Essentially, they made him a government man and as such, untouchable. He's not just a Spider-Man adversary anymore. And Peter Parker is tangentially connected to the upper echelons of power. It's one more step away from the hero that could be you. I also struggle to buy that Peter and Harry even tolerate Norman after Gwen's death. Even if Norman being the Goblin isn't widely known, they know the truth. It beggars belief that Harry just hasn't turned Norman in, testified against him, and got him locked up. So America's son has to go some to win me round. That it almost did is a testament to how good it is. It's a story of fathers and sons, family, the one we make and the one we are born into, and loyalty and betrayal. In a nutshell, Norman has moved the Thunderbolts into being the Avengers, and Spider-Man, thanks to a costume designed by Reed Richards, has infiltrated the group pretending to be Venom. Not the Eddie Brock Venom, but the Mac Gargan Venom. Mac Gargan used to be 
the scorpion but is is now venom yeah continuity is a little bit whack at this point anyway this is ostensibly to help harry who norman has brought into the fold with a view to turning harry into his own version of captain america entitled america's son see what they did there this wouldn't end well for harry not that norman cares harry has his own agenda He's found out former girlfriend Lily Hollister is pregnant and he swears to rid her of the goblin serum running in her own veins to protect the little one growing in her belly. Harry betrays Spider-Man to protect Lily. However, Lily is pregnant with Norman's child, not Harry's. And this betrayal turns Harry around and he instead helps Spider-Man escape from being tortured by Norman. The soap opera shenanigans are one of the reasons I bought into this story. Spider-Man has always had an element of soap opera to the strip, sometimes handled well, sometimes not so. But this was very much one of those campy soap operas like Crossroads or, I don't know, Days of Our Lives, if I'd ever seen Days of Our Lives, but what I imagine Days of Our Lives to be like, with ridiculous situation being piled upon ridiculous situation. The main plot hole here, though, is that Norman states he can't have another child, the implication being that this is due to the goblin serum. But that sex with Lily, who also has the goblin serum running in her veins, somehow managed to negate Norman's sterilisation in that regard and re-engage his little swimmers so that they did conceive a child with Lily. I really don't know how that works on any kind of scientific level, but that's not my main issue. My main issue is... What of the kids he conceived with Gwen? If we, you know, accept since pastor's canon. Why is Norman going to all this trouble when he has a son already? One of the kids that was conceived with Gwen. He's out there somewhere. I mean, I don't think he's ever been mentioned again after the initial story and the sins remembered follow-up, but he, he's out there. Unless Marvel were already ignoring sins past at this point. A wise move as far as I was concerned. Or, and this is entirely possible, they just forgot about it. Putting that all to one side, America's Son is a fast-paced and character-fueled story, focusing on a number of different and pivotal relationships in the book. Peter and Harry, Peter and Norman, Harry and Norman, and Harry, Norman and Lily. Kelly balances the action with drama exceptionally well, bringing back Nora Winters and showing us she isn't quite as fearless as she likes to believe. A story thread that I'm sure will be picked up in the future, when Nora uncovers a secret about Norman and Norman makes it known to Nora. He knows she knows. The finale sees Harry finally divorce himself from Norman and walk away his own man. Again, I don't remember how long this sticks, but given that Harry is now dead again... Once again, lovely listener, we'll see where we go from here. Finally, Amazing Spider-Man issue 600 is a bumper celebration. Mine is signed by Dan Slott and John Romita Jr., which is nice. It arrived with about 600 covers and there are multiple stories between them. Last Legs by Slot and Romita Jr., Identity Crises by Stanley and Marcos Martin, Some Covers You'll Never See by Ed Brubaker, Bendis and Matt Fraction and Assorted Artists, My Brother's Son by Mark Wade and Colleen Duran, If I Was Spider-Man by Bob Gale and Mario Alberti, The Blessing by Zeb Wells and Derek Donovan, and Violent Visions by Joe Kelly and Fiumura. The main story is a whopping 75 pages and takes place on the eve of Aunt May's wedding to Jay Jameson. 
Of course, we can't have a wedding without super villainy. And when Dr. Octopus, who was previous with May, learns of the wedding, his new master plan takes a different form, albeit subconsciously. You see, Oki's dying. He's been beaten around the head one too many times, and he's suffering. Before death, though, he vows to leave his mark. To this end, he takes over every TV, monitor, tablet, CCTV and mobile phone and announces he's doing this for the benefit of all New Yorkers. He has created a smart city, a new New York, organised and run by the power of his mighty intelligence and brainwave patterns. A city run by Dr. Octopus is a city whereby everything will work. However, it backfires. The city running off Octopus's brainwave patterns, is obsessed with killing Spider-Man. It's up to Spider-Man to stop him, and also stop him from screwing up May's wedding, because Ock's subconscious has also cancelled the venue, the cakes, the caterers, and all that gubbins. Mostly this is an enjoyable anniversary issue that tips its hat to the Sinister Six, in that the main antagonist is Doc Ock, Spider-Man is on the ropes for most of it before thinking his way out of the problem. The story involves many guest stars, but primarily the Fantastic Four and the Human Torch. And there are some innocent people captured, in this case Carly Cooper and Nora Winters. That Slot manages to keep the reader's interest for 74 pages of this story is a testament to how dense this is. There's a lot going on here, and it mostly holds up quite well. Romita Jr. and Jansen also maintain a decent standard of quality over a story that is the equivalent of three and a half regular issues. Slot packs the script with numerous callbacks and in-jokes, but never loses sight of this being an anniversary issue, and as such, a fun read. Whilst he does put Spider-Man through the ringer, the final act is celebratory, with Spider-Man using his own brain to take over the running of the city from Ock and fixing all the problems with May's wedding that Ock, in his vanity, caused. And ultimately, this is the story in a nutshell. Ock's vanity once again brings him down. It's pretty easy to read this as set up for superior Spider-Man down the ways. It culminates with the return of Murray Jane. Murray Jane not looking quite as sexy under Ramita Jr.'s pencil as she does under Ramita Sr.'s. That said, Last Legs is hugely enjoyable and entertaining, and a pretty decent anniversary issue. It's not flawless, but it is wildly entertaining. The single pages about the Spider-Man stories you'll never see are fine. Hipster humour. If that's your thing, you'll find them funny. I didn't. Identity Crisis is a cute Stan Lee story that gently mocks himself and Spider-Man's mental capacity. It has nice Marcos Martin art. My Brother's Son is a heartfelt tale of Uncle Ben. If I Was Spider-Man is a version of the Batman Nobody Knows. And The Blessing sees Aunt May ask for permission from Uncle Ben to marry Jay. Fight at the Museum is a cute nod to the Spider-Mobile. And Violent Vision sets up the gauntlet, the next big arc in Spider-Man's publishing history. Seems kind of churlish to complain about that thing nowadays. It's pretty par for the course. I will, as well, give full credit here to the Spider-Man offices. This is a 104-page issue with no ads and no reprints. It even has a letters page, albeit one taken over by the editor, to thank the people who made the book. That's a massive undertaking, so well done. And that applies to the brand new day era as a whole. 
With issue 601, the book really does start moving in different places and becoming a tad darker over the next 48 issues or so, before the next major revamp, Big Time, begins. Overall, this has been an interesting journey. I violently disagreed with what Brand New Day did when it did it, even though I wasn't as wedded to the Peter MJ situation as they were. I did think the way Marvel got rid of the marriage was lame. I went into Brand New Day probably not wanting to like it. I haven't reread a lot of these, so that feeling remained. However, reading them again, divorced of what came before, there's a lot to like here. Credit where it's due, the creative team kept to the remit and the schedule, back-breaking though it must have been. The stories were often interesting, even if the feeling that Peter was being trapped in amber remained. There was a fascinating supporting cast, always a must in Spider-Man, and the new wrinkles added to them with Aunt May's relationships, J. Jonah Jameson becoming Murr, and the continuing problems of Harry Osborne all tapped into the story and evolved those characters, even if Peter himself could not do the same. Of the new characters, Nora Winters showed promise, and Marvel kept shaking up Peter and his world, as much as they were allowed anyway. I've come to judge Brand New Day more kindly. It's not perfect. What is? But it is some good comics. It's really boring, often fun, and in the decompressed age of comics, each issue felt like a full meal. As Ultimate Spider-Man was starting to spin its wheels and lose its luster, delivering rather dull, samey stories dragged out over six issues, Amazing was shaking it up with one, two and three part stories living alongside the bigger arcs. Perhaps the amazing creators were fed up of Ultimate receiving all the plaudits. Who can say? Whatever the reason, though, they dug deep. What they ended up doing was showing the Ultimate line that the main series can still be as fun, entertaining and provocative as ever, even when it's not been innovative. But what's wrong with that? We live in a world where everything has to count if it doesn't get a sequel, it was worthless. If it isn't four hours long and ponderous, it's not worth it. If it doesn't shake everything up in five pages, it's not worth doing. This is frankly balderdash. Sometimes just being entertaining every issue is good enough. This brand new afternoon was a nice afternoon. Warm and sunny. Pleasant even. And we're about to head into a brand new evening. Which I'm sure... I'll get around to covering at some point in the future. Okay, let's have a look at the email section of the show. First, I wish to thank Michael Bailey, who emailed me in following last issue, telling me about Stephen Colbert, uh, which he pronounces Colbert. Oh, okay. Stephen Colbert is the opposite of James Corden. Well, that's good to know. He was a sketch comedy performer and became a correspondent on The Daily Show, where he perfected a satire of a blowhard news correspondent. So, J. Jonah Jameson, basically. In 2004, he spun off into the Colbert Report, pronounced Colbert Rapport. Ah, oh, clever. Where for a decade, I think, he did a nightly mock news show making fun of Fox News star Bill O'Reilly. It was an ongoing bit that poked fun at the news and at politics. But Colbert is a huge nerd and had Joey Q on the show regularly. When Captain America died after Civil War, Joe came on the show and gave Colbert Cap Shield, which hung on the set for the rest of the life of the show. 
When Joe Q came on to talk about Bucky becoming Cap, there was this whole bit where Colbert assumed he was going to be Cap, and props for Joe Q for playing along. I remember the issues where he was on the cover and Colbert mentioning it on his show. He's since gone on to do a standard network talk show, but he has retained a lot of the biting commentary he worked with on The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. So perhaps I judged him too harshly based upon that initial story. So thank you for that, Michael. Thank you for filling in my knowledge on who the hell Stephen Colbert was. And that he is a little bit funnier than that story made him out to be. Next... Robert McCarthy's emailed in. Guest starring in a Spider-Man book means the anti-superhero Thunderbolts actually going after superheroes somebody actually cares about. Did they not do that in their own book? I've never read Thunderbolt. This was around the time they made a point of putting Daredevil and the living mummy in a prison in the negative zone but did nothing when Magneto lost his powers on national TV. I want to read the comic about the poor loser CIA guy who tracked the living mummy for years. Is Is that a thing? I'll be honest with you. I don't know don't know about that like i said i've never read the thunderbolts in fact you know there's an awful lot of marvel over the past 20 years i've not read i keep up with spider-man and that's pretty much it so um, i i rely on you lot to keep me abreast of this situation matt prather's emailed in hey andrew hey matt just dropping a note to let you know how much i've enjoyed your last few shows i have once again fallen behind on my palace adulation you are great thank you well, thank you very much. I've fallen behind on producing them, so I wouldn't worry about it. I went into my local comic store the other day to pick up the latest issue of Gaiman's Miracle Man and picked up the Return of Superman special. Challenges just getting through it. I sat down to read this newest return to the often changes status quo and realised I don't care. I love Superman, but I don't think I can sift through all the things that they think the public want to get to some good stories. I, re- I picked up the um, 30th anniversary special about uh, the death of Superman when I was in London recently. And um, I actually really enjoyed it. I've got to say, I thought there were some good stories. I enjoyed the Dan Jurgens one particularly, which dealt with Superman's son, Superman and Lois's son, Jonathan, um, discovering that his dad had died and come back to life, which I thought was handled quite well. I liked all of them. I thought all the stories in that that was, was interesting. But this is someone who hasn't really read Superman regularly since uh, Jeff Loeb and Ed McGuinness were on the book. I mean, I picked it up here and there. Somewhere along the way, I read Matt, Matt Fraction. <laughs> I read um, Grant Morrison's New 52 run. A couple of issues here and there of other things. It's never really grabbed me. Although I understand that the book is now in good hands again from the aforementioned Michael Bailey. So I have ordered, pre-ordered, Superman number one. And we'll see whether my reading of it sticks this time. Because I do like Superman. And um, I think I've said this a couple of times, particularly to Michael. Star Trek Strange New Worlds was the best new Star Trek show since Deep Space Nine because some bright spark on the production team had the intelligence to say, why don't we just do Star Trek? And I'm kind of like that with Superman. I just wish somebody at DC Comics and Warner Brothers would just have somebody who is clever enough to say, why don't we just do Superman and see what happens? You know, let's have a proper Superman movie instead of Owlman versus Homelander, which is what we've had recently. Matt continues, the Miracle Man story is awesome so far, though. Gaming getting to finish his story arc, and it is great. I hope he passes the property along to some other interesting author after he is done with the book. I would love to see another good writer get the chance to helm it. Thank you, Matt Prather. Well, you're very welcome. I considered Miracle Man. I've considered picking up that omnibus, because it's my understanding Mark Buckingham has gone back 
and significantly redrawn an awful lot of it, hasn't he? So it's you're not just getting a reprint, you're getting um, some new material there as well. So that is interesting to me. And I do like a bit of Neil Gaiman. He had a great cameo on a recent episode of Staged with uh, David Tennant and, and Michael Sheen that was, that was quite funny. Anyway, that about wraps it up for this time. You may have noticed that you are not getting a standalone Christmas episode of this show this year. Not a specific Christmas episode anyway, although I do have a plan and I will hope to bring that plan to fruition if all the dominoes fall correctly because I do love it when a plan comes together um, and that would probably land in between Christmas and New Year and that will be very special. But I'm not doing a standard Christmas episode this year because I just haven't had the time. Work has been exceptionally busy of late and that has impacted on my time to be able to make the show. So that's why you've only got like one episode a month recently. I can only apologise. It is what it is. Life is what it is. And sometimes life gets in the way of us having fun, which sucks. And it shouldn't be that way. But that's the way our overlords want it. And that's the way it is. So all that remains is for me to wish everybody listening a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Whatever you celebrate, whatever denomination you are, we're a broad church. Uh, hope you all have an enjoyable break as we bring 2022 to a close. Wow. Um, and like I say, if it all comes together nicely, there will be another episode before the new year or maybe just after the new year. We'll see how it goes. I'll be back next year with all new episodes about stuff. No plans, as usual. Like Indiana Jones, I make it up as I go. But new episodes of The Overlooked Dark Knight will also be coming your way in the new year as Michael and I get that show up and running again after a, a couple of months where one or both of us was, you know, busy working. Work gets in the way. And I have a new show coming out, The Village Idiots or The Village People. I don't think we've decided on a title. Uh, covering the seminal 1960s Patrick McGowan classic, the prisoner hope you'll join us over on two true freaks with paul bill and dave for that and that's it that's it for another year take care be good to each other sometimes even listen to people have different opinions it, it sometimes helps not always i grant you but sometimes and you know maybe next year will be the year that we all put the past to one side and work together to make today better than yesterday and tomorrow better than today. And if we all do that a little bit at a time, maybe the future will take care of itself. It's nice to dream, isn't it? Take care, everybody. I'll see you again real soon.